This episode of Lucky Paper Radio is brought to you by ASMR. If the sounds of these dice being rolled makes you feel all tingly, you might have ASMR, Autonomous Sensory Meridian Response. Don't worry. It's not a problem. It just sounds like a fetish, but it's just about the tingle. Hello, 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 and welcome to Lucky Paper Radio. I'm your host, Andy, and I'm here with my co-host, Anthony, your own personal RNG Jesus Maddox. You didn't want to just say RNG Jesus? Is that how it's pronounced? I have no idea. I don't know what you're talking about. Maybe it is pronounced RNG Jesus. What are you talking about? You've never heard somebody and make a entreaty to RNG Jesus to basically give them good luck on a roll or a oh, sure. top deck mm-hmm. or something? Mm-hmm. One of those heart of the cards type deals? Yeah, they, say, they say, praise be to RNG Jesus. Please uh, let me draw the thing I need, please. Does it work? I don't know. I've never tried. All right. But the reason I say that, Anthony, is because we need you to weigh in on the most quintessential question of our time, which is, can you roll a spin down and count it as a d20? I'm already triggered. Do you really want want to get into the stupid bike shedding? Is it bike shedding, you think? Uh, That's maybe not the perfect application of this word, but it's definitely a stupid and misleading conversation. What is stupid and misleading about it? It just doesn't matter. It's like people people will say that a a uh, a traditional d20 where the uh, the numbers are you know randomized in a specific way whatever the details aren't important is more random and that's nonsense. If you're if you're rolling it and it is equally likely to land on a side, it doesn't matter how the numbers are arranged. I agree with you. Are you aware that Mark Rosewater and Matt Tabak, rules manager for Wizards of the Coast, have both said that you may not roll a spin down in place of a d20? And and what authority do they have? I don't know if they did that because they feel like it actually does affect the random output or if because they do not want to deal with all of the people that are going to write them stupid emails yeah, I think it's, it's insisting that... Big time the second one. Because <laughs> I'm with you. You know, if you roll a dice even remotely properly, you know, it's just going to be random. And people make these insane arguments where they're like, if it was going to land on a 20... Now it's going to land on an 18, a 17, or a 16 instead of, you know, a 2, a 6, and a 12. And it's like, what does that even mean? What different things are different things? What are you talking about? It makes no that's, sense. That's some real, some real magical thinking right there. I mean, what I will say is if you actually care about the respectability of your dice rolls, uh, don't roll any tumbled dice whatsoever. So anything that has rounded corners. Right. This is, is what I was going to say. It's like, no, no you, I didn't mean to interrupt you. But, oh, no. Go for it. But... People are going to get all upset about, you know, the randomness of a spin down, but tumbled dice, dice where the numbers are actually engraved into the dice, thus it's not evenly weighted across all of the faces, like, none of these are acceptable if you care about full randomness. Or just get a computer to do it. Yeah, computers are perfectly random. Yeah. Let's not go down that rabbit hole. I'm happy to go down the which dice are you allowed to roll and in what way rabbit hole, but uh, but I'm not happy to go down the... How do computers make random numbers rabbit hole? I think here's where we should leave the dice argument. If you enjoy rolling a particular dice, do it. If your opponent sits down and right rolls a different particular dice, which is still fine, don't give him a hard time about it. But as far as I'm concerned, spin down, totally fine. But Watsi says no, not a competitive level play. So I, I feel like the biggest thing is there. 
they're just going to have costed these dice rolling cards in a way that they are just not going to appear in Constructed. Is that correct? Let's talk more about that later. Because, okay. Anthony, this is our first Adventures in the Forgotten Realms show. And I can't believe we have a new magic set already. I mean, I think we get a little thrown off because, you know, we talk largely about Cube. I think Modern Horizons 2 was a landmark set for Cubes for a lot of reasons. And so that was kind of a big a big moment on our calendar. And now to be thrown immediately into another standard set is a little bit warping. But of course, if you play standard, you didn't care about Modern Horizons 2. If you only play on Arena, you never saw any of the Modern Horizons 2 cards that are completely irrelevant to you. That might as well have been a Commander Precon or something. It's just like not even on your radar. So... In the, in the cube world over here, I think we're a little overwhelmed with all the sets and all the new magic cards. But actually, you know, it's been a long time since Strixhaven, which is the most recent standard set. Yeah, I mean, that, that's definitely true that there's sort of this uh, multiple different tracks of different kinds of sets happening. And if you care about all of them, then it's a lot going on all the time. Oh, so much. Everything happens so much. Anyway, our survey is up for Adventures in the Forgotten Realms. By the time this episode is up, our survey will definitely also be up for the accompanying Commander product. What is that called? Do you know? It's called Forgotten Realms Commander. Well, there you go. That's right. On, that's on the nose a little bit. As always, go check out our surveys and tell us what you're testing from these sets. I think for most cube designers, it's pretty safe to say testing fewer things from this set than Modern Horizons 2 on average across the board. So even less work for you to fill out that survey. We know nobody wants to repeat themselves and do extra work. So we did a bunch of work uh, since uh, the last set review such that you don't have to repeat yourself. If you've already updated your list of cards on Cube Cobra, if you put in the link to your cube on Cube Cobra, uh, you'll get a helpful little message that'll pop up and let you import all the cards you've added from Adventures in the Forgotten Realms automatically, and you can rate them and submit. Alternatively, if you fill out the survey first, after you submit the survey, you can copy and paste a list that you can import right into Cube Cobra. So either one you do first, it's going to save you some time. Unless you do them both simultaneously. That would be incredible. Which actually is kind of how I've done it in the past, to be honest. You're insane. I'll have both the blog <laughs> posts on Cobra up and also the Adventures in the Forgotten Realms or the set survey in question up and just fill those out at the same time. Interesting. Well, now you don't have to do that. Save you a little time. <sighs> Thanks, Anthony. So nice of you. Love to think about design and make things better for people. Big thanks to Cube Cobra for both uh, the input that helped us think about that a little bit more clearly and add some new features and actually help us integrate it. No pack one pick one in this episode because we are going to be focusing on talking about the mechanics and overarching design of Adventures in the Forgotten Realms. This is really going to be a game designer hat episode, I think. We're going to be talking about the new mechanics and maybe alluding to some specific new cards, but this is not our set review where we're going to go through kind of card by card and talk about each of them and how they apply to respective cubes. So tune into that next week, the week after, some point soon. This episode, I think, is all about mechanics, which I think is actually kind of more fun to talk about. Oh, it's so much more fun to talk about. I mean, people love to talk about, here's this card, is, you know, this card's crap, this card's great, this card's busted. Garbage. Uh, trash. is great, and trash there's a can place emoji, for that. Trash can uh, emoji. But for me as a cube designer, I'm really sort of interested in getting into the mechanics of how it actually works. How is the set designed? Why are those choices made that way? And that's just such an, an interesting part of the game, and cube is a cool way to engage in in the actual design aspect of the game. Yeah, let's dive into our first mechanic then. I will go over the mechanics kind of one by one. We have, by my count, like four substantial new mechanics and then a bunch of little things sprinkled in that I'm sure you've picked up on anything we can touch on briefly. The flagship mechanic of this new set, I would say, is Dungeons and Venture into the Dungeon. Dungeons are a new type of card. They exist outside of the game, and each of them has a sequence of triggered abilities on it. There are only three dungeons in existence, and you don't have to draft them, pick them up at all. If you have a card in your deck that refers to dungeons, you can just take any one of these from outside of the game at any time. They're just always available to you. Kind of like a little bit like companions, but every deck has all of them. You don't, don't have to draft around them. You don't have to actually pick them in packs. You just get access to them whenever you want. Venture into the dungeon 
is a keyword that progresses you through these dungeons, basically, triggering abilities along the way. And that venture can be an effect of a spell, a triggered ability, like a creature entering the battlefield or attacking, or an activated ability. So there's lots of things that cause you to venture into the dungeon. And all the cards that reference this mechanic kind of fall into two categories, I think. The first category is cards that venture into the dungeon, which basically means that they have an ability that's kind of like a little toolbox ability that is instead of doing one thing every single time it triggers, it's going to do a different thing based on the dungeon you choose and how you sort of choose your path through that dungeon. And then the second set of cards are cards that care about completing a dungeon. We have, we have some cards in the set that basically, if you've completed a dungeon, they get some sort of bonus. And that's when you get to the end of each of these dungeon cards. Yeah, and if you look at the actual sort of uh, set as a draft set, the, these are clearly sort of structured in different color pairs. So the blue-white color pair is all about doing lots of dungeon adventuring, getting through those dungeons. Uh, and the black-white is about can you get through a dungeon and, and finish it and that get some bonus out of that. So, Anthony, what do you think of these? I think overall we should just say like this set is an extremely top-down set. They're trying right. to cram as much stuff from Dungeons & Dragons and make it feel like Dungeons & Dragons as possible. And I think that means we're going to have dun- Dungeons and Dragons. I can confirm there are dragons in the file as well. And I think this is a pretty excellent execution, not just in terms of there's a thing that says dungeon, but it actually sort of gives you this ability as a player to feel like you're going on an adventure and exploring a dungeon. You know, mm-hmm. y- there's this maybe this overarching story, but you're going into this little side quest of exploring what's down there. Yeah, I actually, I don't know mechanically how flavorful it is to me. Like if you had taken the name dungeons off of this and taken the keyword ability venture into the dungeon and show me this mechanic, I'm not sure I would have said like, oh, that's like a dungeon. But I actually kind of like it even more that way because it's like, okay, this idea, this flavor inspired a certain design, but ultimately the design is like kind of a new thing. Like it's not a dungeon from Dungeons and Dragons. It's a brand new thing that exists in Magic the Gathering that behaves differently and can be used in different ways. Totally. I mean, it does give them a lot of opportunity as well to give that uh, specific flavor, you know, include characters and references to locations and things like that in the dungeon cards themselves. We've said on the show before, I'm a simp for modality, and these are effectively modal cards. Every single one of these cards that ventures into the dungeon has modes on it, a complex array of modes that is nicely condensed into this very simple action word, venture into the dungeon. So that venture into the dungeon trigger can do, I mean, any one of probably, what, 16, 17 things across all the different trigger abilities and all the different dungeons, depending on where you are and what dungeon you choose. And that, I think, is very cool that it allows you to basically cram all of this depth and complexity, but not have the cards be incredibly wordy and complicated and have this whole dungeon card basically to remind you of the abilities and only let you do it in a specific order so you don't have to be overwhelmed with choice, right? Like none of the dungeons let you choose at any point between any more than two branching choices and then you can, you know, reconvene or, you know, branch off further. So you're never like paralyzed by, oh, there's 12 different things I can do when I trigger this venture into the dungeon. You just get to like make a small choice every single time that advances your game plan, which I, I think plays really nicely. So when these dungeons were previewed, I feel like there were two immediate kinds of conversations that popped up, especially in sort of the cube community. Uh, One of them was people sort of pointing out, hey, this seems like a pretty parasitic mechanic. I knew you were going to say that word. I've got that word in my notes here. We can't not talk about it. Uh, And the other thing I think we saw a bunch is, and this happens, you know, obviously with every new mechanic, because it's the only way we process things as humans is trying to compare it to our past experience. So people are saying, well, this is just like a saga or just like a contraption or any other kinds of mechanics. Or a companion or whatever, yeah. Exactly, yeah. And I think it's worth actually just digging into how this is actually distinct from those mechanics. And and the biggest way is just that these are not really cards. Like, these are just basically a token that tracks some state. The entire card text of, you know, you can take these actions is basically just baked into every card that says venture. Right. So by taking that card that says whenever this creature attacks, it ventures, 
that's kind of all self-contained and is really just sort of like this uh, attack trigger. So just like we have a creature that says whenever this attacks, you create a 1-1 cat with vigilance. We can also say whenever it attacks, you may scry. And then you can make a 1-1. And then you can put a counter on something. Uh, it's just like a very complicated attack trigger that keeps its state as you're going on this adventure. I actually think the mechanic it's most similar to is not one I ever saw anybody else compare it to. I think it's most similar to energy. Energy is this mechanic that gives you a new resource that exists on a different part of the game. It's not like you get counters on a card, you get counters on a player specifically. And then you can spend those energy resources on other cards to do other stuff. Which basically meant that energy generating cards turned into cards that could do any one of a number of things depending on what outlets you had for that use of energy. And this is kind of similar in the sense that the cards that venture into the dungeon can do any one of a number of things. Instead of those outlets having to be cards you drafted and put in your deck, those outlets are just dungeons, and they're more prescriptive, and you go through them in a specific order. I see what you're saying, but I don't totally agree, because energy cards were very... I think, you know, we're going to get into this parasitism issue immediately. It's going to happen. We're going to talk about uh, The energy cards, really, you, you wanted to play one card that generated energy, and then another card that get, got you value out of that energy, right? I mean, there were a fair number of cards that did both. Your and there were definitely plenty your... that, that worked on their own. Mm -hmm. But the dungeon cards really aren't that way. You're not generating a resource that you use later um, outside of you know a couple you know rares that let you double double triggers and things like that they're just each one lets you do the thing and and so I don't really get right. that comparison it, it doesn't have sense. the like saving up energy to use later but in the sense that if you have your Gwent sleeve siphoner and your Aether Seer harvester in play now your Gwent sleeve siphoner whenever it attacks says give your Aether Seer harvester lifelink right it does this thing that it doesn't say on the card it doesn't say on Gwent sleeve siphoner this can give your Harvester lifelink. It has this intermediary. Just like it doesn't say on all these venture cards, this can scry one, this can make your opponent lose a life, this can do what all of your, all those little tiny things in those dungeons are. I mean, that's true, but each of those venture cards can do all of the things on their own, given you know enough time right. or that is the difference. retrigging them. Yeah, so uh, let's let's talk a little bit of, about parasitism. Never heard so of it. What does it mean? Parasitism <laughs> is a term that has been stolen from R&D. Basically, what it means is some card doesn't function on its own. It depends on another is kind of the most literal way to describe it. But <sighs> yeah, I, I do want to be a little bit pedantic because I know people are going to get all in the comments about this episode. It's borrowed from R&D. To R&D, literally all the term means is, does this mechanic work outside of the set in which it was printed? That's what parasitic means. So if you look at something like Splice at least the original implementation of Splice, which was just Splice onto Arcane, that is like the quintessential parasitic mechanic because when that mechanic was printed, there were literally no other Arcane spells in any other set in Magic's history. So there was no other card that Splice cards could interact with other than the ones in that set. Now, cube designers have adopted this term and use it as you described, Anthony, which is basically to describe some card that needs a specific context in order to work, which is tough because people like, read that different ways and there's a lot of different sort of interpretations on what parasitic means and we don't have a webster's dictionary for this term we don't have some authority to answer the question for us we're using it differently than r&d is because we don't have sets we we don't have different sets in our cubes we just have our cube so what does parasitic mean i mean it works with cards in the cube so it would not be parasitic by r&d's definition at all and everyone's just trying to basically figure out how it maps to their own environment and their own understanding of of cards i mean true but i think in both cases you're still describing a card that doesn't function on its own really like it does need that outside support and, yeah. and in the context of a set that means this one set has that support whereas others do not right i think the, the problem with that is that there are so many cards that if you look get into that gray area that like don't work on their own like okay that's fair so basically what i'm saying is I, I i want to get to the point where i'm saying i don't agree that these are parasitic but i do want to reflect on the two ways that people have described them as being such I, uh, before you get into that i'll say my take is that i don't think the mechanic is parasitic I think some of the cards are parasitic. 
So the two ways I think that people have sort of quickly interpreted them, you know, you see these, it's like, hey, we have one card that does a thing that adventures and another card that is this dungeon card. And and we've seen that in kind of like these A-B mechanics where it's like, oh, we have Devoid and the thing that gives you value when you cast colorless spells. And these, you know, two cards really depend on each other. That is not the case at all with dungeons because... You don't have to draft the dungeon cards in normal limited. You don't have to in a cube unless you wanted to try that. All of the text that is on the, the dungeons is really baked into the cards that have venture into the dungeon. So it it's just not parasitic in that sense. Do you agree? Yeah, I agree completely. I mean, I think this is kind of like the same conversation we had with Strixhaven and the lessons where people were like, oh, this mechanic super parasitic. I either have to completely reinvented for cube and give people like big lesson boards by default, or I just can't put it in my cube unless I run 50 of each of these cards. And I think you made a very great point. We talked about it where it's like, no, you can just put a couple first of all, learn had this great fallback of you could just rummage, which was fine on some cards in certain circumstances. The cards were also playable on their own. The lessons are playable on their own, especially the more powerful ones. And the learn worked because you could rummage if you didn't have a thing to get. And so you could just put mascot exhibition and a couple of the more aggressively costed learn cards in your cube. And that's just now a new combo. You can just cast Mascot Exhibition in your ramp deck if you want. Or you have this new combo you can assemble, just like you can assemble... I don't I don't, I don't want to keep referencing Splitter it's Twin. basically Splitter Twin. I don't want to keep referencing Splitter Twin and like Pester Might. There are other combos, Heliod, Ballista, something like that. It's just a new kind of combo that could totally work. I don't think most cube designers saw it that way. And I think this mechanic is the same way. I think people are like looking at this and saying, well, Venture into the Dungeon is a whole thing. If I'm not doing a Venture into the Dungeon thing, I can't play any of these cards. When right. That's totally not true. I think a lot of these cards would completely work on their own just if it was the only Venture card in the entire cube. Well, that does get to the second kind of thing that I think people will describe as parasitic, which is that, sure, I can draft this one Venture card and it can do all the stuff on its own. But if I'm actually trying to, if, if the reason that this card is powerful is because it lets me get through an entire dungeon and like getting to that last step of a dungeon is what makes the the effect valuable, then you can see where, where depending on how the individual cards are designed, one venture card might not be worth it if that first ability isn't worth it. Uh, whereas if you have a critical mass, actually getting all the way to the end of the dungeon where you get a more powerful effect could actually be worth it. And I think that really comes down to the individual cards, whether or not getting you know a single creature that says, well, you may have the choice of gain one life, scry one, or have your opponent lose a life, or sorry, each player loses a life whenever this creature attacks or when it ETBs, you know, whatever that is, that might just be a fine card. But if the cards you're playing are, you know, below rate and they only really pay you off if you have a critical mass of them, then I think we do have that uh, area where, you know, the synergy matters is maybe a better uh, way to describe it than parasitism. And I think that power level is really a big part of that. If, if you it have, always comes up. It's always important. Right. If you just have a card that says, well, you know, one mana instant speed, deal three damage to any target, and also venture into the dungeon, you would never describe that as parasitic because you just want to play Lightning Bolt. But right. if it's a card that you really need to, it's, it's below rate and you really need a, a lot of extra support to make it worth its while, then it does start to get into that space. Yeah, for sure. So I think that's just something to, to consider, you know, not just say, oh, Venture is a parasitic mechanic and dismiss it. But if you are interested in some of these cards, give them a critical look and think about if I just trigger this ability once or, you know, if it is a repeatable ability, you know, if it's on attack, it, how valuable is that actually going to be in an average game? Yeah, absolutely. And I think you should just basically, like you said, that Venture into the Dungeon collapses all of the abilities of all the dungeon cards to one line of rules text. And so you can just swap it out. Let's just take a card that enters the battlefield and ventures into a dungeon, that cloister gargoyle or whatever. Is that playable in your cube if it basically says, when enters the battlefield, do one of the three following, and the three following are all the first abilities of the three dungeons. 
that's what that card actually says. And, you know, are you willing to basically play it that way? It is worth mentioning that is a lot of noise to add. So if, it is. if you if you just wanted to like a creature with a small ETB, maybe that's not what you're looking for. Yeah. So for my part, I think that uh, the more self-contained and powerful venture cards like, you know, Nadar, Selfless Paladin, this is two and a white for a 3-3 three, three of Vigilance. And whenever it enters the battlefield or attacks, you venture into the dungeon. And then other creatures you control get plus one, plus one, as long as you've completed a dungeon. That card, very powerful, very self-contained. That could be the only venture in a dungeon card in the entire set, and it works totally fine. Some of the more parasitic cards are like Gloomstalker, Hama Pashar, Ruin Seeker. These are cards that basically, once you've completed a dungeon, it gets some additional ability, but they themselves don't venture into the dungeon. And so it's like, all right. That does literally only work if you have a bunch of other cards in your cube that are venturing into the dungeon. Otherwise, this ability is never going to be turned on, and it's just a completely dead effect. Right, that's definitely true. That's my take on it. I don't think it's very parasitic as a mechanic, because it is entirely self-contained and doesn't require other cards to make the mechanic work, which is, to me, the definition of parasitism practically. The cards that are very narrow and very focused on, especially completing dungeons, do become parasitic or narrow. Here's my thing about parasitic. I think... 95% 95% of times anybody says parasitic in conversations about cube, if they just took that word out and replaced it with narrow, all the exact same information would be communicated and nobody would get confused about what the words mean and there'd be no arguments about it. I think it. you could say that about a lot of different terms that if if ever there's somebody gets into an argument about semantics, if you just say, I'm going to stop using that word and instead replace it with a few more words that actually describe what I mean in that context. But narrow is just one word. Narrow, That's just one sometimes word. Sometimes just one word. Sometimes just one. Sometimes a few. Uh, a lot of conversations would go smoother. Anyway, so that's my thing about parasitism. Just say narrow instead, and 99% of the time it will mean exactly what you want it to mean. The last thing I want to think about with dungeons is... You look at these and you're like, oh man, dungeons, there's this whole new card type, there's going to be a whole bunch of them, and then there's just three, which is kind of disappointing. But the comparison I want to make there is to contraptions, which are a similar sort of like, I have a card that links to some outside the game ability. Contraptions are obviously different in that you did have to draft the contraption. So that was this sort of A-B mechanic that, uh, you know, was relevant during the draft. But additionally, because you were drafting them, or, you know, I guess if you played some kind of constructed magic, you'd choose 15 or whatever start with your deck of contraptions i'm sure people did that for sure but because every single one of these venture cards has the entirety of all dungeons baked into them we don't actually want a ton of them just giving you the choice of three options is a lot of choice when those three options actually branch into a lot of others for sure so i think the fact that actually you know the first choice really when you first venture is the most difficult choice because you have to choose between three options uh, and beyond that, like you mentioned, it's a maximum of, of two different choices. Right. I, I think that is actually a level of complexity that makes a lot of sense. So it's I think it's totally reasonable that there are only three. There is a little more depth baked into that, though, because some of those choices, you have two choices. But depending on which one you... Ch- like, the dungeons all end at the same place, but sometimes you get through faster or slower depending on which path you choose. So, like, in a vacuum, yes, you, are, you have one of two choices that splits, but one of those choices will get you to a destination faster than the other depending on the choices you make. So there's a lot of interesting depth, I think, to that. Using that sort of 2D layout of the decision matrix is like, that's new in Magic, where like that combination of like, you can choose two things, and then based on that choice, you have a different set of choices later on. Like we've seen lots of modal spells, but this idea that they are linked in this way where your previous choices matter for your future options is is, is completely new, I think, in Magic. It's like a modal spell over time. Whoa, dude. Modal time. Slow kicker. Everything's kicker. All right, Anthony, the last thing we got to touch on here is do you spec hard on the best venture cards on the hopes that in eight or nine years they will print some messed up dungeon card that'll take over 
Modern 2 or whatever the new <laughs> Eternal format is at that point. <laughs> no. Modern 2, Electric Bugaloo. Yeah, I'm not going to speculate on these either. I'm not much of a speculator. The next mechanic is a really interesting one, I think, because it's not actually a mechanic in the sense that it has no affiliated rules text and nothing to represent it in the comprehensive rules of magic. I'm talking about flavor words. This set introduces little italicized words or phrases preceding abilities and rules text, and these words have no effect on the rules. It's basically just a label for the ability that's either triggering or you know happening at the re resolution of a spell or whatever. I'm pretty sure the only example of these prior to this set in Magic's past are the Siege Cycle in Fate Reforged with Choose Cons or Dragons. Can you think of another example of this ever happening? I mean, they were also on the vote cards in uh, Conspiracy. Oh, yeah. Where people choose sure. time or money. But but also, I mean, just to take a step back, this is the dungeons are cool. The, the roll d20 is cool. This is really the only thing I want to talk about with this set. This is by far my favorite part of this whole set. Not I'm, even close. Same. I'm so excited about this. And really, like what you're getting at is that this already just was a mechanic. This was already part of magic. You know, we have ability words like battalion or morbid or uh, name another one. <laughs> Any other ability word? I know lots of them. Undergrowth. And the, what's distinct about these is they're different from keywords because keywords, you know, are, are literally just rules text. You can just drop in. If this has a keyword, I can expand the text, use text expander, expand the text of that keyword. And, you know, instead of flying, this could just say this creature can't be blocked except by creatures without flying or reach. And if that keyword was phasing, now your card is illegible because the text is too small. Correct. Whereas these ability words don't actually have any meaning because if we're talking about morbid, it might say, well, it cares about when a creature dies, but maybe if it's on a permanent, something triggers whenever something dies, but maybe if it's a spell, right. it cares whether that happened earlier in the turn, mm -hmm, or mm -hmm. you know, it's just that that thing that it cares about is implemented in different ways. So we already have ability words, and this is just like a gross, horrible misuse and abuse of ability words, which is just awesome. It's it just, so It makes cool. everything so flavorful. And I think what distinguishes this to me from the other mechanics is... Well, first of all, it's not a mechanic. It's not a mechanic. <laughs> but the others are, you know, really top down. We're saying, hey, we got to make dungeons. Let's get them in here. We know we want to roll. We got to have dragons. We got to get them in there. Get dragons. Easy. No problem. We got to have some and. This is not just saying we want to get, you know, the, the imagery, the flavor of D&D, &D, the, me the mechanics of D&D &D into the game. This is we actually want to get the feeling of D&D &D into the game. And yeah. that's really what. Yeah. D&D is, at least in my experience, you know, it seems like, oh, it's this kind of like nerdy game, you roll dice, but really it's it's a collaborative storytelling game with your friends. Yeah. It's and basically you... improv comedy with the like additional helping text of like you get to you get your character handed to you on a character sheet. And if you're at a well, loss you for you spend a lot of time rolling. And if character. you're at a loss for what to do, you know, you roll a dice and something happens randomly, and that's like a prompt, basically, which makes it much easier to improv, basically. I mean, the structure matters more to some players than to others, but really, yeah, I think that that is Nah, key. come on. It's whose line is it anyway, but for games. The classes are all made up and the die rolls don't matter. So I think what these do is they're, they're not just adding, you know, a little bit of extra flavor text. They're actually adding flavor to the mechanics. So when you uh, have your gelatinous ooze enter the battlefield, you don't just say, oh, well, you know, cast my guy, boop your dude, tap this, ping your guy. You're saying, well, my gelatinous cube engulfs your creature, and then later so I will good. dissolve it. And it, it, it I actually can't get over like, how good it is. Lets you, it forces you to sort of tell the story of your cards and gives you descriptive words to talk about what you're doing in the game. Or, you know, here's my manticore. It enters the battlefield and it hits your creature with its tail spikes. 
And I think that actually bringing that language and giving you a way to feel like you're telling the story more is really the more than all the other mechanics brings D&D into the game. It is my favorite thing I've seen on a magic card in years. I hope this gets tacked onto every, I hope this becomes evergreen. I want evergreen flavor words because here's the thing. I think we've said in the show before, I don't read flavor text. I don't read like here. Here's my dragon, <laughs> but you would and like these it abilities. If you were forced to. And then at the bottom, it's like uh, one day on a dark volcano, Dracuseth fell down and stubbed his toe, and now he's very angry. Like I don't, I don't care about the flavor text. I never think to read it. It does not come up. But what I do do all the time when I'm playing Magic is play a card and say, okay, target your thing, do this, and trigger to say trigger. Like we made a joke on the intro to last week's podcast about just saying trigger out loud, as if that make is fun to do. And what this does is it takes all of those, the moments of actually playing the game where you're saying these kind of nonsense things like, you know, ETB, bounce that, do this, bounce that, trigger, target that, <laughs> do all these little like... That's what magic sounds like. It is what it sounds like. I mean, like it, people that watch magic but don't play will often joke that it's like you're just shuffling cards and like pointing at stuff. <laughs> like it's, it feels like a weird arcane language. And I think this is so, so successful at, like you said, making the the arc of the game come alive. And I think it makes the cards easier to understand. Like when you have two choices and they're named choices, it's much easier to tell there are two. It's much easier to indicate which one you're picking. It makes the choices feel meaningful and like more important because you have these like proper nouns naming them. Again, like instead of saying, I activate my blink dog, you say, I teleport blink dog. You get to say, I teleport blink dog in, in magic now. And it's great. A lot of these things too, I feel like are also things that basically would have naturally become a shorthand anyway, more or less. Except it would be, you know, I, I activate, I blink, or I boop. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, like, like magic players have started to say blink, uh, you know, and like Mill is another good example that was later adopted in the actual rules of the game, where you start to shortcut things because you're not going to say, uh, I play this card, opponent, please put the top three cards of your deck into your graveyard. You say, I'm milling for three, because it's much faster, it's a shortcut. And what these cards do is, some more successfully than others, but give you a handy shortcut to basically reference the ability that's happening, which I just think, I think it's great. I think it's so, so, so good. I do want to temper our excitement with, in two ways. So I don't. You said you, you wanted to see this be evergreen. You want to see evergreen. this in every single set. In every set. And I don't disagree. I think it's. I think it would actually add a lot to the game. On the other hand, I do see that it is really important to bring that that D and D play style and that flavor. So I I would not sacrifice be this set. Make it less special. <laughs> Here's the thing. I think it should be used sparingly. If like every single ability, every single card was named, it would lose all of its value immediately. But I think used strategically on specific cards in sets in the future, this is fantastic. Makes a ton of sense. Well, I also wonder if it could be a little bit confusing. Like here in the set, if we're saying, hey, you're going to see some italic words, just go with it. Just enjoy it. But if you I... saw tail spikes on one card somewhere, do you think that people would not be confused if it was like literally just this one card? I mean, I don't think people got confused by cons or dragons or by uh, grandeur or time or, uh, you know, oblivion. What are the options on that stupid uh, chorus of portal? I don't, I'm not going to look it up. I don't think people get confused by those. No, I don't think it would be confusing if it was used well. Okay. Well, the other thing I wanted to say is that I think that uh, something like Coercive Portal or Expropriate, I think that's actually a pretty bad use of these. Uh, I think we have a lot uh, of... Coercive Portal is just a bad card. <laughs> <laughs> so we have a lot of choice cards here uh, as well that, you know, are not just labeling this is this is what this activated or triggered ability is representing and what it's named. There's also these cards that say, choose one of these two things, and it's either do you attack the goblins or do you uh, run away? And I think that those choices actually make a lot of sense or, you know, I'm going to 
if I have my plundering barbarian enter the battlefield and I say, well, I'm going to smash this, I'm going to smash the chest, I'm going to destroy this artifact, I'm going to smash that artifact is kind of, I think, how it's going to end up being shorthanded. But when it's a choice that you're giving to your opponent, I think it does actually make it a lot more confusing. So yeah, whenever bad. somebody casts like expropriate that. and they're like, choose time or money, and everybody's like, oh, what's time? What's money again? And That's somebody bad. else is like, agree. oh, I just got back from the bathroom because you've been taking a 24-minute turn. And, and also and expropriate to... is a bad card, too. Force of Porter, expropriate, bad cards. Don't like them. One star. So I think that, yeah, when when you're using it in a way that makes language more descriptive and the person that is in control of that language is also you know, pointing out obvious targets and it's fitting into normal play patterns that makes a lot of sense when you're forcing your opponents to care about these flavor words that's not great to me do you think this goes hand in hand with the naming pattern we see on a couple of cards where some of the cards have like second person narrative titles like you're ambushed on the road you find the villain's lair do you feel like this is part of the same thing basically oh totally i mean i do too yeah when we have these you know a creature enters the battlefield it does its thing and that's descriptive that's one one aspect but also the fact that it lets you really have cards that tell a story you find the cursed idol what do you want to do do you want to smash it or lift the curse or steal its eyes these just sort of make that uh, whole experience of casting that spell so much more evocative and descriptive yeah i think some of the choice cards that are named like you're ambushed on the road or you find the villain's lair or you come to a river. I think a lot of those cards in practice, you won't actually say the name of the card when you cast it. You will just say the mode. So so the experience would be like, you're reading the card. You reading the card you drew, you come to a river is what you will read and your brain will process that. And then when you cast it, you're just going to say, I'll fight the current on your guy. You know, I, I'll bounce your guy sure, back to your so hand. So it's almost just like a split card in a way. Right. And that has different titles. I, I think that's how those cards are going to play out. I don't think you're going to say out loud very much like, you find the villain's lair. I think you're just going to say, you know, either counter the thing or draw a discard or whatever that card's actual modes are um, with those named modes. I think it goes hand in hand with that. I love this card naming mechanic too. I saw a lot of people being salty about these names of these cards and it's so silly to call a mace plus two plus two mace and what do you mean this card is called? You're ambushed on the road. It's so ridiculous. I think they're fabulous. I love them. I want to, want to kiss them. Great job, wizards. People have thoughts about the next mechanic, Anthony, and that is rolling D20s. There are a fair few... Ooh, did you, did you get that on mic? I got a 16. Here, let me just... Uh, here, get some dice rolling ASMR down here. Oh, yeah, that's the good shit. Oh, my fiddle dice back. There are several cards in this set with abilities or spells you cast that instruct you to roll a D20 and then have a little table, a little results table that tells you what happens based on the result of that roll. This is obviously pulled very straight from Dungeons and Dragons. I would say this is the mechanic that is by far the most direct lift from what Dungeons and Dragons is. You know, D&D is all about rolling d20s to determine whether or not things succeed or fail, and it kind of dictates a lot of how the game is played. And we have a pretty direct port of that to magic here, where you have some stellar ability, you roll... And in basically all instances, you get some effect that's not bad. It's not like if you roll poorly, something horrible happens to you. It's just that the effect is lesser than. And then if you roll higher, the effect is better. The vast majority of these cards are broken out into tables of 1 to 9 and 10 to 20, with many of them having a different effect at 20. But the first thing I was struck by with this mechanic is that a lot of these are basically kind of stand-ins for a coin flip, because so many of these cards say, if 1 to 9 do this, if 10 to 20 do this, some of them say if exactly 20, you know, if a critical hit, do the most powerful thing. And that to me is kind of a, a bummer in the sense that it, I think, diminishes what this mechanic is when so many of those tables are, are breaking down very similarly. 
and this is ruffling people's feathers because, you know, I've said before on this show I don't like variants. I'm fighting a constant war against variants. And here we have rolling D20s is a very overt example of variants in magic. What say you? I want to push back on that. Uh, what? what? First of all, you say you're always trying to fight variants. I think that's... If, if you want to f- go play chess, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I, I like that magic has variants. And I think the fighting of it is one of the most interesting tensions in the game. I, right. So there has to be variants so you have something to, to mitigate against and, and like set yourself up for success in the context of a harsh environment. It, if there was no variance in magic, then consistency would not be an axis which my players or which I could navigate when drafting and playing the game. I could not make the choice of saying, in this environment, I'm going to choose to have a more consistent less powerful card, I would just always take the powerful card because consistency would be a given and I would just get to do everything all the time. So I I like magic. I like variants in magic because I like fighting against it. So I don't think that is as uh, black and white as you put it. That makes more sense. I don't like chess. I would say as a a player, you want to fight against variants, but that doesn't mean as a cube designer, you should just try and eliminate all variants. No, I want to give my players the option to fight on that axis and not just be at the whims of maximum variance okay i'm back with you i do want to push it also though against uh these being high variance cards i didn't say high variance i said the variance was overt and i think that's uh i'm pushing back not against you but everyone else out there <laughs> all right because, everyone else get ready to get pushed back on <laughs> because i think you're totally right like the variance here is explicit it says do a random thing but magic is already such a high variance game i yeah. mean how much more high variance that does it get than draw a card Draw I mean, a card from this random pile, and if you draw two lands in a row, that's the game, right? And, and if you need any proof of this, just look at the overall career win rate of the absolute best Magic players of all time, and it's like maybe Paulo Vitor, Dominic Rosa, and LSB are like slightly over sixty percent. Like they still lose almost as many games as they win across their entire career. Like because Magic is not a game of pure skill. And I also really want to uh, just talking about the individual card designs. Appreciate that. I think they've done this in a great way that there there are no instances that I'm aware of that are like really punishing. Like what I really wouldn't want to have seen is you roll a d20 deal that much damage to target creature. That's a kind of effect that we've seen in some ways. Or target on players. Cards, or target player. <laughs> That's even worse. We've seen in some places. And the, and the problem with a design like Lava that spike? is... Lava spike? Question mark? <laughs> it, it doesn't really let you as a player make a plan, right? So if you say, well... I could be doing two damage to this creature or could be doing four damage. I don't know if I should target their 2-2 or their 4-4. And if I target their 4-4, I just get punished. Like, that's the kind of variance that I think is pretty problematic. But if you look at these particular ones, like you said, they are do a good thing, do a good thing a little better, or do a great thing. And I think that that really still lets you, as a player, feel like you have agency, even in the face of this explicit, this overt variance. You can say, well, I need to get this creature back next turn so I can block this. And if I get lucky, maybe it'll go right into play right now. But I'm I can still... save my mana or whatever. Yeah. Right. Uh, or, you know, my plan is I need to generate more card advantage. I'm going to use this to draw cards. I might only draw one card. I might draw two. I might get really lucky and draw three. I understand why they kept... For the most part, I think there's one card that has a critical fail. If you roll one, something horrible happens or something really not good happens. I understand why they kept that off the cards, but I do think that the fact that so many of the cards basically come down to two two effects, maybe a third on critical hit, does narrow the the value of this mechanic and how flavorful it actually is because there is less range on most of these cards than really just you know two options and you know, 5% of the time, this really cool option happens. I mean, is that just a factor uh, or a result of the fact that cards are small? Like, how, how much can they actually fit on a card? 
that's part of it, I'm sure, but they could have broken more of them down, like, you know, one to five and six to, to 20, or like, it could have been different breakdowns, so it wasn't always a 50% chance of one or the other, or a 45% chance and a 50% chance and a 5% chance, or whatever the breakdown is. I wonder if that might have also just been a legibility issue, like, if most of the cards are pretty consistent, you're knowing, hey, there's like a lot of text to read here, if they're consistently one through nine, 10 to 20, with sometimes uh, uh, an outlier here or there, it just makes processing the whole set a lot easier where it's like if every card i both have to read the options and understand what the statistical breakdown is that might just be so much more cognitive overload and i wonder even if that's just why they chose you know one through nine ten to twenty rather than uh one through ten and or eleven one through, through 20. seven and you know eight well i mean just the fact 13. that it's, it's not exactly 50 50 i wonder if just like rolling a 10 feels like it is in the upper half even though it's not technically on a dice uh, on a d20 so I, I wouldn't have been surprised if they did some early play testing and people kept you know rolling a 10 and thinking great i got the good option and then it turns out no you didn't and right it's basically single digit or double digit right yeah is, so is what you rolled i wonder if all of those decisions just come down to sort of like the grok ability of these cards i'm sure it does and i don't mean to criticize it in that sense i'm sure they play tested and have made a very informed decision that for, for what's best for the game i'm saying for me like if you're going to put d20 variants in magic i would love to see some critical fails like that's part of the fun of D too right like what was it our very first D campaign that your character fainted like in the first hour and then you rolled back-to-back critical fails and we had a character die immediately and our dm who was new was like uh sorry buddy you're dead i, I remember guess. The, the dm really tried to twist the rules he's like well you fainted but and then i yeah rolled the, the double critical fails it was just like well i god god has done <laughs> says literally everything book, he can do says here in my book you're dead son uh, uh but that's like that is a memorable moment though like that's part of what makes D great is that that can happen sometimes you can roll back-to-back critical fails and something awful happens okay but now i'm gonna flip on you do you want that much variance in magic well here's the thing i don't want any of this in magic i'm not gonna lie i get the sense you may be a little bit more of a defender of this mechanic than i'm gonna be i'm kind of in the don't like the dice rolling aspect and i'll explain more about that later but if you're gonna do it i think you should commit to the bit and not do it half-heartedly like don't worry something good happens no matter what you're always gonna get something like no put some critical fails in there let them let them roll dice if that's what they like you know I think I agree. I don't know. So I, I like that experience when it happens. And if I could, again, like feel like I have agency and I want to put this card in my deck and play it, sure. But I also, um, I, I don't know if I'm going to put a bunch of the critical fail cards in my deck. So I might just not get to that experience, even if I would have a good time with it. And that becomes a question of the balance of the cards, right? Like, if I were working on the R&D team for this set... Right, so for them to be able to make the great critical fail cards, they might have to be busted. Well, that's what I'm saying. So, I mean, it's a 5% chance of rolling a 1. It's not that much. I think putting critical fails on a lot of these cards would be fine exactly 95% of the time. And you make the cards a little bit better to make up for that. And the, I, my goal as the designer of this set, if I were working on the R&D design team, would be, on the Watsi design team, would be like, I want these to be very relevant in limited... I want Southern to show up and constructed, and I want the tension of actually rolling a d20 to save your character or to beat the end boss or whatever that you get in Dungeons and Dragons to be present on these cards as well. And I don't actually think most of them have that. Most of them, it's like you roll a dice, but did it really matter? Like, how much better or worse is it? Because they have been so neutered to basically make it so it's not a feel bad. No, I think you're right. I think that's sort of my point is I think that these are less variants than they, or they introduce less variants than it actually seems. And I, I, I kind of agree with that. The, the payoff for the variance just isn't there for me. And, and here's what I'll say about this idea of rolling dice in Magic, right? Like, you and I agree completely. Magic is a game of variance. And something that's very important to me is that I think the variance in Magic is inherently very fun. 
drawing a card is fun. Looking at a brand new card on the top of your deck is just a fun experience. Like, everyone loves drawing cards. It's almost universal to all Magic players. And so that thing about the game that is the variance, it introduces these potential feel-bads, these, I got mana screwed, I got mana flooded, whatever. At least, at its very core, that is fun. It's fun to draw cards. It's fun to see what your opening hand is. Like, that's part of the fun of playing Magic. And I think it's one of the reasons why the game is great. If whatever that variance at the center of the game engine was wasn't fun, then I don't think the game would be as successful as it is. Over to D&D... I think rolling a d20 is also fun. <laughs> I think it's also really fun to be like get the highest number. They make those d20s that when you roll a 20, the dice lights up and plays a little song or something. Whoa. God knows those aren't truly random because it's got a bunch of like, <laughs> it's got a bunch of LEDs and uh, and circuits in it. You know, it's 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 fun to roll a dice and and get to like getting to literally cast dice to see what happens. I think is very exciting. My concern about this is that. None of these cards have done anything to mitigate the inherent variance of magic, which is like when you draw cards, that's what's going to happen. They've just stacked a whole other layer of variance on top of it. And in doing so, they have had to, like I said, kind of narrow the range of that variance because I, I assume they have found in playtesting that if you you know, were top decking and drawing lands all game, then you finally drew your actual spell and you cast it and you rolled a critical fail. Like you would just walk away from the game and, and never play says, ever you know, again. If you roll a one, you lose the GP. You call your credit card company, you issue a charge back on the pre-release <laughs> thing. You're, you're just done. You check out. And so I'm sure that was part of what was happening here. I'm sure this has been carefully balanced. But I think the reason that this mechanic ended up the way it did is because stacking these two kinds of variants on top of each other is not fun. Like if you took D&D and said, all right, you're a character and you have these spells, but... Every time you get into a battle, you have to draw a random spell from your spell deck, and then you get to mm. cast it and roll a d20. So you're saying, like, that if they designed suck. a whole video game around you battling, and there's, you know, you have to draw spells from your deck, maybe that video game wouldn't succeed? What are you talking about? The, the mat, never mind. I, I, I'm, That's not for you. I, I don't <laughs> know what it is. I don't know what it is. So in D&D, right, you have your character sheet. You have your, I can always do these things. These are things I can always do. And because there's no variance there, the variance is introduced at how right. effectively do I do these things when I do them. It's it's almost like it's artificial in a way, or you know, it's it's constructed in the game where between you and your game master in D and D, you have complete agency. You can do anything, and the die rolling is the source of variance that puts an external an external randomness and forces the game into ways you don't expect. And it makes it a and, game. Something I've said before is I don't really think of anything without variance as truly a game. Like to me, chess is almost more of a sport. Although chess has a lot of variance in whether you go first or second. Not to get pedantic. Now we're going to get tweets. To me, like, I, I really feel like the core of what I like about games is variance. It's there's a level, there's an amount of chaos that you can't control, and playing the game is navigating that chaos in a way that uh, is strategic. And, right. And, and so in Magic, like, if, if we take that, you know, the dice rolling adds that kind of variance you're describing to D&D. In Magic, if we just said, okay, you have your whole deck in your hands, you play whatever spells, whatever order you awesome. want, that wouldn't be very much fun. But saying, well, you only have, you know, a random subset, that actually makes the game. I'm bracing myself for a dig against the generic microcube. I can feel it coming. <laughs> oh, you, I wasn't even thinking about that. You start with half your deck oh, in your let hands. Me, let me work on that. <laughs> you work on that cool roast. Open up my list of burns. So, yeah, I, I just think that... Um, I'm not really into this mechanic, and it's for those two reasons. One, it's variants stacked on top of already inherent variants. Now, if this mechanic had been designed differently, where, like, let's say you did have a companion board of spells that any D&D spells you draft start outside the game, and whenever you want, you can cast them, you know, as long as you pay their mana cost. So you basically start in your hand, and those spells have D20 level, like, extreme variants baked into them. That's maybe interesting to me, because now it's like, all right, at least I've circumvented the variants of magic and i have this new level of variance that's present in D. but when you just stack them on top of each other 
you have to narrow the range of that variance so much that you end up with these cards where it's like, all right, I did three or I did four, or I returned the card to my hand, or I returned the card to... Oh, that one's actually a pretty big difference. <laughs> 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 There's some, a lot of them very marginal differences, and it's like, okay, why? But what fun is this to like just make my cards slightly worse or slightly die. better? Yeah, I just it's not for me. Yeah. No, I think you're right. I, I think that I'm, I will defend this mechanic. I think that... Uh, they had to do they it. They had to they do it. They had to do it in the Dungeons & Dragons set. And I think it's going to be really fun for... I think we haven't talked much about this. I think all of these mechanics are slam dunks for new players. Over-the-top slam dunks. Variance helps new players perform better and beat better players all the time. Flavor words are going to help add some texture to what you're doing. The dungeons are very flavorful, and you get to have this extra thing that's happening, and you get to have your little character in the map. I think this is going to be a really compelling set to new players because of these mechanics. Rolling D20s, for me as an enfranchised Magic player, is not what I'm looking to do. Yeah, I'm kind of in the same same place. Even though I will defend it, it's it's not the... It's not what I need in Magic. Uh, I will be adding exactly one of these cards to a cube. The deck of many things technically says someone can lose the game. So in my stupid new there cube <laughs> that's built all around alternate win conditions, I am obligated to put it in. So, oh, here's the other thing I'll say about this. I said the Magic's variance is inherently fun, and it is. I do think that crit failing in D&D is way more fun than flooding or getting mana screwed, <laughs> which, is a, which is essentially the Magic equivalent of you know rolling a critical fail. Because in Magic... Getting really unlucky in variance is just kind of a slow, like, oh, no, not again. No, 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 no. And D&D, it's all focused on that one moment. And it's also public information. I think it also makes variance sting less when everyone, your opponent and everyone else watching, knows that it's variance that costs you that thing. Whereas when you're just drawing bad cards, it looks like you're just playing badly. That's, <laughs> it looks like your deck is, is bad. For sure. So that is one nod to, like I said, I think both of these variance engines are fun and interesting in their own right. I don't love compounding them and stacking them on top of each other. We got one more main mechanic here, and that is classes, Anthony. These are inspired by the classes in D&D. Of course, all of your characters will have a race and a class, and you basically combine those effects and create a unique character from them. Classes are enchantments that have different levels, three levels on each of them. You can pay mana to level up that enchantment as a sorcery and when you level it up you either get some combination of triggered or static abilities that adjust what's going on in play so it's an enchantment that levels up basically as the game goes on kind of like a hybrid between leveling cards and sagas and stuff like that and uh, these I think very much like the venture to the dungeon cards I think are a great way to take a lot of complex abilities and condense them onto you know one card because you have to do these things again sequentially you got to pay for them one at a time and you're not overwhelmed with all these options because you can only take the next step at a given time what do you think about classes i mean i think in terms of implementation as far as like a top-down design it's, it's interesting i'm saying top-down design but it is top-down design of taking one game to another so it maybe they had a little bit side to side time. design <laughs> side to side design but I feel like this is just a slam dunk. Like I, th- I feel like it's a great implementation. It feels like you have this class. You are li- literally leveling up to become a, a level two druid, and and that's just like perfect flavor. Yeah, I-, I agree. I think they're simple and work really well, and just really suit what classes are in D and D. I think if I had seen these before sagas were created, I would say this is bonkers. How can magic cards look this way? How can they operate? this way? I remember way? seeing the first saga and being like, "Holy crap! Vertical? What the heck's going on here?" I feel like, do you think that Wizards is just like, they've done so many out there wild things that they've actually, by making all these d- very unique far out designs, they've created a lot of design space 
within there where now it's like people are comfortable with these more they've moved novel the weirdness things. overton window i agree completely great so <laughs> i mean the the unfortunate part is like now i look at this and i'm like cool that makes perfect sense but it, it doesn't give me that like immediate reaction that sagas did at first yeah I, I i don't feel a little spark of excitement in me about the classes i think they're cool i think they work good job it <laughs> i don't know um i mean i do like modal cards and these are not strictly speaking modal because you can only again choose this one path through them but it give you choices in your turn of whether to spend your mana investing in your class resource or casting more spells from your hand. More options is something I'm always a big fan of. I think a couple of these are quite powerful. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, compared to flavor words, I have much less to say about classes. I think they work pretty well. I think it's going to add a lot of the same flavor of saying, well, now I'm a barbarian. And uh, it's it's maybe a little bit munchkin, but I think it's going to be a, play out a lot better than munchkin. Oh, I don't think it's at all munchkin. <laughs> don't just, get me started just, on just... munchkin. Ugh. Ugh. <laughs> I have one more observation about this set in relationship to previous sets. Between Companions, Lesson and Learn, to a lesser degree, a little bit Adventure Cards, and now Dungeons, I do feel like at some point four years ago, R&D said, like, let's play more with stuff that's not in your hand, on the battlefield, in your library, in your graveyard. Let's play more with these zones and do something else with what we can do. Because, I mean, all these cards go to weird places. They go to exile on an adventure. The companion exists in your sideboard from outside the game, and you bring it into your deck, but it still affects your deck construction. Lessons are in your sideboard. You get to pull them in. Um, we saw Wish, actual just Wish printed in the set, which I think is kind of a flavor slam dunk, which is a generic Wish card. And then now we have these dungeons, which, as you said, not a card. It's a reminder of complex rules text that was otherwise embedded in all the venture cards. But I I'm noticing they're playing a lot with this with this space of this additional zone. Do you think that was a deliberate choice or just a necessity? I, so. I mean, a little bit of both. I think they. I think at some point they made the observation of like, well, this is kind of a little bit of an untapped space and we're going to need to start tapping it because we've designed 30,000 magic cards and we're running out of things to do on a little magic card. But um, that's something I've noticed. There's a lot of that going on, which I don't know. I think it's fine. I like, I like all those cards and mechanics well enough. I don't hate it. I'll, I'll be excited when, uh, you know, our contraption deck comes to Black Border Magic. What little tiny themes and um, I'm, I'm sure you have a little list over there of little patterns you notice. What else did you want to talk about in this set before we uh, close the book on the first Adventures in the Forgotten Realms episode? The only other thing I wanted to touch on is just how great some of these individual top-down designs are. So, for example, we talked about the gelatinous cube and this idea of this you creature. You love the gelatinous cube. It's very good. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good cube, Bront. <laughs> Uh, so this creature enters the battlefield and it devours one of your opponent's creatures and then you can digest uh, it, it later. It, uh, sorry, it engulfs. I'm not looking at the right. Uh, and then you dissolve it words. later. Um, and we have things like the 50 feet of rope, which is just, you know, an object that you have in, you know, every D&D adventure starts with, oh, well, what do you got in your inventory? You okay, I've got 50 feet of rope. Um, and, and I love the, the specificity of it. It's, it's like funny in both contexts because it's this, it's not just some rope or like, magic rope of warding it's like 50 feet of rope it's so yeah on the, and for on the people nose. that don't play D D, like you basically when you roll a character and set up your initial character sheet you again you choose your race you choose your class and based on what you choose you get some combination of starting stuff but i'm pretty sure in fifth edition even prior editions every single class gets 50 feet of rope you always get 50 yeah. feet of rope no matter who you are what walk of life you're from everybody's got some rope in D. &D. another one that i really really love is mimic yeah, this is uh, two mana for an artifact treasure. You can sacrifice it to add one mana of any color, tap and sacrifice it, or just pay two to make it become a shapeshifter artifact creature with base power and toughness 3-3 three, three until end of turn. I mean, this is just a perfect translation. It's like, is it a treasure or is it a surprise creature that is uh, going to get you? 
And and like I, I love the fact that it is like we saw Ginger Brute because of you know the way they uh, created like food as a subtype of artifact. They could make the the creature that was also a food. The fact that they can make a mimic here that can turn into a treasure or that is a treasure but then can turn into a creature. It's just such a perfect flavor win. I think. Yeah, pretty fun. Should we close the book on our first chapter of Adventures in the Forgotten Realms? I actually want to talk about one other little card. This Great. is not a mechanic. This isn't a theme. Uh, this is just a very small thing. LSV actually pointed this out in the set review. Potion of Healings. So this is a two mana. It costs one and a white for an artifact. When it enters the battlefield, draw a card. And you can pay a white tap and sacrifice Potion of Healing. You gain three life. First of all, this is, again, another slam dunk top-down design. You know, you're playing D&D. You're going to have some potions. They're going to heal you. But I also just think this is a really, really excellent card design for the reason that he described, which is that you don't have to activate this immediately to get the life gain. So the, the obvious thing you want to compare this to is Revitalize, which is almost the same thing. It's a two mana card that or two mana spell that draws you a card and gains you three life. So overall, this just looks like a much worse Revitalize because it ultimately costs three mana. It does look worse. I it agree. looks worse. But I think actually not only is it a better design, I think it is actually a more powerful card. And the reason being Revitalize, you get the life gain, but you have to do it right away. If you're, you know, maybe you've drafted a life gain deck, you know, assuming we have a context where that actually matters. It's not just a cycling card. Okay. If you have Revitalize on turn two in your hand and you don't have another turn two play, you're kind of obligated just to cycle it away because you can't afford to not do anything in most environments, right? Sure. With this, you can actually just play this on turn two. You get your card right away. And then later on, when you actually have something that cares about that life gain, you cash it in. And the even though it does cost more mana, it's just one additional mana that you tack on to, you know, I'm going to make my play play the the griffin area or whatever cares about life gain and immediately be able to trigger that. I, I mean, this is similar to when we were talking about my primary cube where... I had Evolving Wilds in it at first, but I realized like those didn't actually work for the Landfall theme because similarly, if you had a moment where it was you know not disruptive to your curve to play and use the Evolving Wilds, you kind of had to do it right then. You couldn't wait to be able to trigger it later on. Uh, so I switched to Prismatic Vistas specifically for that reason because right. it actually gave you the flexibility of saying, well, I'm going to keep this in my hand and then it can interact with all these Landfall or you know top of library matters, all those kinds of things. And so I think if you're designing a cube thinking about not just how many cards do i have that potentially enable like in, in this case the life gain theme mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, but how many cards do i actually have that can enable the theme and will do a good job of it the fact that this isn't something that just has to happen and if i draw my cards in the wrong order and i'm forced to you know use things in a suboptimal way i'm not going to actually be able to make that work this card no matter when you draw it it'll always let you actually do the thing and i think that's just such an interesting lesson and the fact that what's important about a card to make certain synergies work is not just that it has all the right keywords but that it actually has the right play pattern it doesn't punish you for going against the the sort of thing that the deck wants to do love that observation but I think it's very interesting. You are wild if you think this is more powerful than Revitalize, though. You would need so many life gain matters payoffs for me to be willing to pay a whole additional mana for this, which is 33% more mana, and the first two of it always at sorcery speed. A lot worse than Revitalize, I think. I think that if you're designing a cube where you actually... Like, if life gain is a theme in your cube and you care about it, I mean, I disagree with you. <laughs> Okay, well, only one way to find out. We have to build an AI to draft and play a bunch of games, build two identical cubes, one with Potion of Healing, one with Revitalize, play 100,000 matches together and see which one has a higher win percentage. Easy. Great. Fun weekend project for us. 
That's it for Lucky Paper Radio. Thank you for tuning in. Our set surveys, again, are live. Go to luckypaper.co. There'll be a banner at the top of the page there. You can click to check them out and tell us what you're testing from Adventures in Forgotten Realms and the, the Dungeons and Dragons Commander product, whatever it's called. Can't remember. It doesn't matter. It does matter. It does matter. And he, I'll, I'll make a little I'll make a little shout out. We've talked before about how a lot of the Commander cards go overlooked. People exactly. don't say they're going to test them. And then you fast forward to six months, eight months, 12 months, lots of people playing those cards. So look extra hard at those cards, which aren't being analyzed by you know limited resources and the standard magic thought engine. Use your own brain. Figure out if those cards are good for your cube and uh, tell us on the survey. That'll be great. Also, want to give a quick shout out to uh, we. The last week's episode, you heard my horrific cover of uh, Chop Suey, which I, I recorded that episode. Anything I recorded that one a little bit ahead of schedule because I was going on vacation. We needed to bank some episodes. And when I finished making that introduction cover, I just dropped it over to uh, Jason Waddell of Riptide Lab, who makes some very funny videos on his YouTube channel. And I was like, Jason, if you want to do something with this, you can. I'm just giving it to you because maybe it's interesting to you. No pressure. Do whatever you want. And Jason, of course, made a masterpiece of a little YouTube sketch uh, with that cover as the backdrop. So go check that out in the show notes. I couldn't mention it in the previous episode because it was already edited and published by the time that uh, that Jason finished his video. But uh, go check that out because it is well worth your time. It's very good. It's very good. Thank you, Jason. You are a national treasure. All of our music is produced by DJ James Nasty. All of the magic cards are produced by Wizards of the Coast, who also produces Dungeons and Dragons. All the listening is done by you. All the talking is done by me and my dear friend, Anthony. Thank you for rolling D20s with me, Anthony. Absolutely. Are you excited for a pre-release? Are you not already tired of the set? I, I don't want to talk about it. I just... This is my one This is my one magic boomer thing, okay? Like, I try not to be change-averse. I try not to be an old fogey. But it bums me out so much that pre-release is in a week. And the cards will have been on Arena for two whole weeks before we get to play with them in paper. People have been casting them, figuring out what's good, what's bad. I'm going to sit down a pre-release across from a player in our local playgroup who's already ground out 25 drafts or something, and I'm at a huge disadvantage. I, all I want, I understand that the world is moving on. Most people are going to play Digital Magic. I can't stop them. That's fine. I, uh, that's totally fine by me. All I want is that pre-release event, that one event where we sit down and none of us have cast any of those cards before, and we get to have that special moment in time where we're all doing it for the first time. I miss that. That's all I want. I miss it too. No more previews. If we could ask one thing of you, Wizards, just completely change your business model and the way you reveal. Nope. Previews, I don't mind. I mean, that, that's unavoidable. I mean, specifically just letting people play the whole set two weeks before pre-release. It's like, uh, it just bums me out that I'm going to be at such a huge disadvantage. I just want to sit down and cast the cards for the first time together. Same. Still looking forward to it, though. It's going to be fun. I'm looking forward to it, too. Thank you.